Hello and welcome to the Almost LA Podcast. My name is Aiden. And my name is Audra. All right. I did it. I'm in the midst of studying for finals week, which starts today, Sunday. It starts tomorrow. So. That's why this is late. That's why this is late because I have freaking so out. much stuff to do. It's all jazz as I've, I think I've mentioned like two weeks ago. But now this jazz is in full effect. I'm learning all these 251 licks. I'm learning all these jazz standard songs. I have to play them. I have to memorize them. We have to know the form. What are the standard songs that you're learning? Uh, we're being tested on Autumn Leaves, Blue Bossa. Um, what else? And others. I mean, they're all whatever. And they all kind of use the same chord progressions. So it's not that bad, but it is also that bad. I have another quarter yeah. of jazz next semester. So I'll have to have another nine weeks, ten weeks of jazz. And then I get to do rock and pop over the summer. But for now, rock and pop over for now the I'm summer. struggling. But it's still teaching me okay. a lot, so that's not that big of a deal. That sounds like something your mother told you. <laughs> <laughs> Getting away from the topic of jazz to a j- different genre of music, today our topic is... Let's go to a genre that has nothing to do with anything or any kind of sound right. except noise. Okay. But I find hilarious... We're going to talk about punk, All right. and specifically, obviously, the L.A. punk scene. I titled the episode of this, I guess, on my sheet but, here, Anarchy. Bud Light and Cocaine. <laughs> Bud Light? Did they have Bud Light back then? I hope so, because that seems like a pretty standard, disgusting beer. I don't know. The stuff that they were drinking in this documentary I was watching looked like it was a lot of English beer and a lot of 40s. Hmm. Oh, um, oh the big, like... Yeah, I think it was just liquor store. Yes, which is what college kids use. Well, that's what back in the day, cheap, large, disgusting beer. Yeah, we all drink uh, expensive wines now. We sit around, go. (laughs) I'm I'm playing jazz this quarter. That's what my school's like. Yeah, (laughs) with your jazz and your refined palate. (laughs) Right. Of all of all your 19 year old. Oh yeah, how was your birthday? Oh yeah, my birthday was fun. I just had some people over to my apartment. Very low key and chill. I usually don't like to have super big birthday bashes no you were grouchy your whole day that we were there yep. for your birthday yep. but we went to until we bought you clothes until we bought me clothes and that was fine yeah but we went to the cheesecake factory <laughs> which was yep. very fun ate i still have yes. left actually i ate all my leftovers but i had leftovers from everybody's food so. for a while um cheesecake factory is good we, we went to what well, cheesecake factory saying happy birthday to you which was embarrassing right yeah which i thought was hilarious <laughs> Because that's what parents do is they embarrass their kids. Of course, of course. And then uh, we went to H&M, right? Yep. Yeah. H&M, got some clothes. I have some new pairs of jeans instead of wearing the same pair of jeans every single day and one pair of sweatpants. Hey, all through college I wore a red pair of sweatpants. Oh, really? Just a red pair of sweatpants. Not even like a normal color. Like it was obvious I was wearing the same wear- red sweatpants well, every yeah, day. Well, yeah, I mean, you're not supposed to have multiple pairs of red sweatpants or even <laughs> one pair of red sweatpants <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> what's wrong with red sweatpants they're they're they're, they're red they're like i just rolled out of bed and i'm really loud about it <laughs> and this was the uh wait so you're in college yeah so this was 1950 <laughs> 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 
the 90s. Where punk okay. came back into the mainstream, but that's a different story again. Yeah, but this is, we're going to talk about real punk. Yeah. And we're going to talk about LA punk. Okay. So a lot of this comes from uh, Rolling Stone articles uh, and a documentary that I watched called The Decline of Western Civilization okay. by Penelope Spheres. I think as you pronounce her name. Um, she also directed Wayne's World, which I thought was funny. She went on to do some other stuff. So um, let me give you a little blurb about what L.A. was like in the 70s um, to kind of prompt this whole punk thing. Now, in England, we all know that punk was like a it was like anarchy about social classes, and they had their own thing kind of going on. Uh, so I think when it came over here, started in Detroit, New York, and then kind of made its way to L.A., it wasn't so much about what England stuff was going through, but it was kind of just, um, you know, teenagers rebelling against other stuff. Mm-hmm. And in L.A., mostly hippies and some of the uh, urban decay that was going around in L.A. at the time. So in the 70s, as I just said, you know, L.A. was kind of in an urban decay, which means a lot of major cities across the USA after industrialization and a lot of like the 40s and 50s, um, the war and stuff. Uh, everything was kind of shifting within the cities. And in L.A., the air quality was so bad, um, especially around the 50s, that people were actually carrying around fresh air tanks on their backs. They look like they look like they're about to go scuba diving, but they were like walking to work. Oh, that's gross. So I'll post, I saw, uh, there's a whole a website that I found that um, somebody kind of like cataloged all these photographs from that time about the air quality. So I'll post some of those on Instagram because they're like horrific. You think LA smog is bad now? Oh my God, I had no idea it was so bad back in like the 40s and 50s. What was that due to? Like, it was all the the factories, yeah, all the cars, cars, and um, just industry. Yeah. All the factories from the defense, um, oh, right. air, you know, building the airplanes and all the stuff in the 40s for the war, um, you know, and just industrial industrial stuff. Um, and then they would actually also wear gas masks. So they have those like creepy looking like wartime gas masks that they would, you know, women and men would, you know, walking down the street, everybody had their gas masks on their air tanks. It was horrific. It looks like a horror movie. Um, and by the forties, the amount of cars in LA had doubled from a million to 2 million, which leads to the pollution as well. And back then they actually didn't really know that cars were actually polluting the air. It took some scientist who was like, Hey, I think this car stuff is, making things worse too and people were like oh cool but they didn't do anything about it so then you kind of jump to 1965 um, the immigration act uh, was passed which eliminated discrimination on immigration quotas specifically all over the world but a lot to do with asia when it when you talk about la so we had a lot of influx of chinese koreans japanese filipinos um you know, that settled downtown and we, you know, we kind of have these little pockets in LA, which a lot of cities do, where these um, immigrants would settle. And now you have these like thriving, you know, Chinatown, Je- you know, Japantown, Koreatown is a big one in LA too. They have great food. Um, and then during World War II, going back to the war, uh, Africans American moved west for defense jobs. And that was called this uh, the African American second great migration so that brought an influx of african americans into the the area as well but still even after all that um there they 
back then, which is a problem that we're dealing with now, especially in California and the uh, Mexican immigration, was even though they were lifting a lot of these quotas on other countries, we put a smackdown on Mexicans and the, the quotas that they could come into this country. So back in the 40s, the U.S. essentially like were begging Mexican workers to come to the States mm-hmm. under a government uh, guest program that permitted millions of workers to be here legally. And then with the 65 Act, um, in that it included that they were actually taming the Mexican quotas and making it go from millions and millions of people to 20,000. But we still needed workers, so then hence they started coming in illegally, and that's kind of why we have this this, just illegal issue is because we were like, come over, come over, come over. And then we were like, no, 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 forget it, come over, but let everybody else come over. So it's a very confusing kind of thing. So in a 1960 LA census, uh, it reported that there was more than 5 million of LA's 6 million were white and native. So clearly in the 60s, still heavily Caucasian in LA, which you don't think about today. So today, about only a third of LA is white and about 35% are foreign born. Um, So everything was kind of changing. um, And with all the immigration that came in, you know, you had what was called white flight where everybody that was white downtown and lived in LA took off and went to San Fernando Valley. So they moved to the valley, which takes away, you know, jobs and housing and all that kind of stuff. You know, and you you leave a lower income set of people who are just coming to this country trying to make it downtown, which leads to kind of things falling apart. And even like the Hollywood sign was losing its glamour at that point. By the 70s, the D and the third O of the sign had toppled down onto Mount Lee and completely fallen off. And then an arsonist had set fire to the bottom of the second L in the Hollywood sign. So that thing... If you're going to look for a sign yeah. of the times, the whole, the whole thing was, it was literally falling apart. Everything was literally yeah. falling apart. A lot of the film studios at that time had also moved to the Valley, and the only one left was basically Paramount, which is still to this day kind of smack dab in the middle of, of Hollywood. Um, so my point being, it was a, a big change. Uh, and, you know, the kids that were coming out of this were probably dealing with parents who were probably racist. I'm making a generalization, you know, and complaining about the air quality. And a lot of these adults had grown up in the horrible you know, air quality within the 40s and 50s. And then having their own kids that were now like coming of age in the, like the late 60s and 70s, you know, I'm sure watching the news and all this stuff, it was all affecting these kids. And then on top of that, with women going into the workforce, uh, divorce rates were like peaking in the, in the 70s and early 80s. So then you have all these egg angry, confused, bored kids and out of that, you know, comes this whole punk scene. And that's kind of my interpretation of where it comes from, because I like to kind of figure out what's going on. Why is there this wave of angry kids coming out of this hippie kind of right. thing, you know? Um, and so one of the most famous uh, punk bands in the U.S., not in L.A., but in the U.S., that kind of started the L.A. movement that was influenced by a lot of L.A. punk guys was were the Ramones. So, Aiden, can you play the... Well, you have you have that one pulled up. I have pop. the next one pulled up. Oh, I yeah. do? Oh, so, basically, sorry. it's, a, com- oh it's a combination of, like, that. that's kind of what was going on here, but obviously, like, all across America, there was... Because punk started popping yeah, up in w- the... Almost in the early 70s, right? Yeah, so punk yeah. technically didn't start 
they give it a, a year of like 1977 where it was named punk. So punk kind of came yes. out of that. Yeah, so oh, okay. punk kind of came out of that glitter rock, you know, glam mm-hmm. rock thing. Remember when we talked about that episode where it kind of branched off into like disco and then it, and pop and sorry and punk. Mm. So it took two different ways, um, and they they kind of give it a time around 1977 for you know the the, the U.S. kind of stuff. Okay. And before that, it was very underground, kind of like heavy sounds, heavy more heavy sounds than the glitter rock stuff. Um, okay, so I'm gonna play the Ramones Blitzkrieg, Blitzkrieg, Blitzkrieg pop, bop. I don't know why I can't say that. It's like a tongue twister. <laughs> Blitzkrieg bop. Ready? Just say it like them. The Blitzkrieg boop. <laughs> There's the Blitzkrieg boop. That's a classic. And then they, the Ramones are a classic. They went from that. They went from that to playing the Friends uh, theme song, <laughs> which is super punk. That's that's them. So yes. no one told you life was gonna be this way. Yes. I didn't know that. Pretty sure. Look it up. Wow. Yeah. Because I was obsessed with Friends, obviously. Back in the nineties. Well, I'm sure they made okay. no money off of that theme song. No, no, not, <laughs> not at, at all. all. Broke. Completely broke. Totally broke. All right. Okay. Um, so you have some very punk things listed here. I have very punk Rebellion, things. Rebellion, anger, Cause... aggression, violence, stick and poke tattoos, graffiti, mm-hmm. inaudible lyrics. <laughs> That's from drugs. Mm-hmm. Messy instrument playing, loud and fast, <laughs> pogo dancing. What's that? That's the up and down. They called it pogo dancing back then. I don't know what they call it now, but just the, like when you're literally jumping up and down the I'm air. I'm just going like to reference drugs multiple times in this podcast. That's just. Do you know what a pogo stick dancing. is? Yeah, I know what a pogo stick is. <laughs> oh, I don't know. That's like a very 40, I don't know, like back in the I day. I was born last thing. year. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever been? You've never been on. You've never seen one, probably. I've been on a pogo stick. You have? Yeah. It's just a pogo Where? stick. That, well, you make it sound like it's super normal. Well, no, I mean, okay. like. You're, I'm pretty sure. Well, were you on drugs when you were on the podcast? Yes, stick? and I fell off. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, shaved head. Okay, so they were anti-hippie with the shaved head. That's what you Wait, have. you missed mosh pits. Oh, right. Mosh pits jumping on stage and off stage. Ripped clothes, mm-hmm. safety pins, short hair that's self-cut or shaved, obviously. Anti-hippie, ripped stockings, mm-hmm. fishnet, bright makeup from glam rock. Living in squalor? Is that just Yeah. Like oh, they were living all living. So... The jumping on stage and kind of like the pushing around stuff, you know, like I don't I mean, we called it a mosh pit. I don't know yeah. what they called it back then, if that was the thing, but like stage diving and stuff. But before that, if you think about it, you went to a concert. Nobody touched each other. You danced kind of in a line next to each other unless you were slow dancing. So it was the first time that the audience was like having contact with each other, which was so out of like sorts. Everyone was like, what is going on? These kids are like pushing each other, jumping on each other. And then it was the first time that you'd ever had an interaction with like, you know, the band and the audience were, you know, because if you think about where they were playing, they were so anti these big arenas, you know, that you couldn't get to the stage. 
that your stage was either on the floor or like one little step up you were right there with the crowd yeah. you know so people would throw themselves on the stage and then they would be fighting each other and then you know you know somebody would dive into the stage it was a whole it was a whole interaction thing which was had not even been done before which of course i'm sure people that were super uptight about it thought that that was cuckoo baluku and then of course fights would break out and then you know these kids were making no money had no money you know so in the documentary the decline of western civilization um they were interviewing black flag and they were living in this abandoned church for like 15 bucks a month but they were living on like this blanket and i mean it was it was just it was utter squalor it was disgusting so you said uh yeah yeah, there's some I, i i was just trying to find it i can't remember what it was but there's a video of some punk band uh, bringing like the entire audience up onto the stage, yeah, and it's I'm pretty sure it was like the Sex Pistols, probably. Uh, and they go down, and he like leads everybody up onto the stage. You can watch it. So if you want to try and find yeah, that online, crazy. I just tried to find it, and there was no video of it. But that's very yeah. that was not uh, a, a normal thing. Yeah, no, not a normal thing. So radio stations, you know, before um, when punk was being played. It wasn't on the radio. They were playing like Led Zeppelin, Bee Gees, Elton John, you know, these big, huge arena acts. And the kids that were over the hippie area in this whole like arena, big stage thing, um, you know, were saying that they couldn't relate to these guys. You know, um, one of the news articles from the L.A. Times that I said, you know, she was like, look, we can't relate to these huge acts that now live in Beverly Hills and have a ton of money. You know, they're not like us. And so it was like this anti money, you know, flashy big act kind of thing mm-hmm. um so that's kind of the punk movement you know as the 60s counterculture movement was their own thing this was another counterculture movement against the counterculture movement so it was like this you know crazy thing so as i said before this kind of started in america it started in De- detroit with these two bands specifically um mc5 and the stooges which is iggy pop's band um and iggy pop was the first one that uh I, you know, kind of was doing this self-harm thing. So one of the stories I read supposedly, at, remember Rodney Binghamheimer's Bingham Binghamheimer's <laughs> English disco that we talked yeah. about. I know it's a mouthful too. <laughs> um, apparently, when Iggy was playing there one time during the whole glitter rock thing, he accidentally cut himself with a bottle. Like somebody threw a bottle or something happened, and he accidentally cut himself, um, and his chest was bleeding. And from then on, that was like a thing that he did on stage. So he'd just take broken glasses. He'd start cutting himself everywhere and to bleed. And that became like his part of his yeah. act. And so that be kind of came a, a punk thing later on because of Iggy Pop that people would cut themselves with razor blades, you know, this whole yeah. thing. Um, and so the new the doc, uh, there's a new doc out that I watched the beginning of it called Punk, um, which was produced by Iggy and and uh, fashion designer John Varvatos. I watched the first half of it, and it's mostly about Detroit and New York, but it's really, um, it's pretty good. They interview a ton of people. It didn't really have anything to do with LA, but it, if you want to watch that, it shows you kind of where all this started in America, at least. Um, and then those bands were influenced by the Ramones, Lou Reed, Patti Smith, Iggy, Blondie um, from New York, and the Sex Pistols and the Clash from Britain. Is And then we have our own little LA scene here that popped up. Um, punk is like stripped down rock. It's sometimes very sloppy, mostly angry and violent. 
and punk gigs were spread by word of mouth back then because they weren't being played on the radio and they would put up these flyers stapled all over to telephone poles so if you ever wondered why people staple crap to telephone poles um, it kind of started back then with these flyers because that was the only way to get out the word of where these things were taking place um, and it was the only way to get an audience to come to your show uh, basically and then when Rodney uh, Bingham Hire he had a I think it was called photographic magazine or uh, phonographic magazine I think he had a column in that um, I'm blanking on the name of it but he would write about punk shows randomly so that kind of would get out the word of mouth too so he was again after the glitter glam thing he was kind of promoting the, the punk rock so as I kind of alluded to most of this underground stuff was either played in somebody's house and people would go or they would rent out like a hall like a vets hall or something you know um, and that was until this Scottish Irish transplant man named Brendan Mullen stumbled across a cheap hole-in-the-wall space while looking for a place to rehearse and it's in an alley at 1655 Cherokee and Hollywood Boulevard the kind of the crossroads there um, is where he found this little divey place and it was below the Pussycat Theater which was a famed uh, chain porn theater at the time they were all over Santa Monica and LA and which I thought was a funny anecdote. They used to sell popcorn just like to anybody on the street. So you didn't have to go into the theater, but they'd be like, hey, here's some free popcorn, which I find horrifically disgusting. Yeah, that's not sanitary. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> that's a health code it's violation. Weird. It's weird, but that was one of their selling points. They're like, we sell popcorn to anyone. And I'm like, gross. Um, so the place was like a steal because it was obviously be- below this like porn theater. And it was a 800... Uh, no, sorry, that's a typo. Eight, 85 bucks a month for 10,000 square feet. So nothing. Yeah. It was, so it's a small place, but it was very cheap. So he decided to open um, it as a club, as also a rehearsal space for these places, so people could have a place to go. And, and he opened it um, in 1977. He called it The Mask. And a lot of the L.A. punk bands had their start there. Um, it was only around officially for five months before the fire marshal shut it down because it had no back door and it was obviously very unsafe and as you can imagine the crowds in there it was probably shoulder to shoulder jam-packed um but he unofficially kept it open as a rehearsal space and you could have like smaller parties and i'm sure it kind of um it was open for a couple more years like that where he just had to be careful who was kind of coming in i'm sure they had huge parties and probably didn't get caught is what i'm assuming and you know because of the anarchy kind of vibe you know they covered the place in graffiti you know sometimes there was poetry stuff on it and sometimes if not more often it was absolutely disgusting um some bands when you watch the documentary you know bands would form and people were sometimes in two or three different bands because it was so kind of loosey-goosey the punk stuff and some of the bands would just grab their names from whatever graffiti they saw on the wall so sure you can find some names of bands that you're like where'd they get that name and it was just something stupid somebody scrawled in the wall they're like that's our band name man cool um so i tried to there's a bunch of pictures of the the walls from back then and it's actually preserved to this day uh the the people that moved in there it's a video production company now and the alleyways actually got a gate across it, but they they preserved the graffiti, and you can actually use it now in, in like you know professional photo shoots and stuff. But 
I tried to kind of look at it and see what graffiti was the most colorful. And of course it was like, there's so much of it. You can barely make it out because it's like words on top of words, a lot of F words. And then uh, one of the classic ones you can see is F the pig face cops. Oh yeah. (laughs) I believe I've heard that term. (laughs) Yeah. So other popular clubs um, around that time, uh, after the mass kind of opened were uh, called Hong Kong Club 88, the Fleetwood uh, Cherrywood Studios, which was a studio recording place that if most of the punk clubs that got, or sorry, punk bands that got banned, they would actually go to Cherrywood Studios and play little gigs and then the Starwood. So those are some of the other popular ones. But the mask started it all. Um, and that's where a lot of people got their start. And so in night, the end of 1979 in December to May 1980 uh, Penelope this director she she filmed um, this documentary decline of Western civilization and when it screened in LA there were so many riots and fights that broke out the LAPD police chief Daryl Gates um, wrote a letter to the filmmakers asking them never to screen it again just said cam this thing don't ever show it anywhere again and it's pretty I mean I can see back then it's shocking now to me to see it you know about how you know some of these kids were living and their attitudes you know sometimes it was racist sometimes it was just you know one of the most disturbing anecdotes from the doc that um i it was one of the guys from the germs which we'll talk about in a second he was like in the kitchen cooking with this girl and they were making food and whatever and and she was telling a story about how her parents had gone to China on vacation and they hired this painter to come paint their house and the painter had died in the backyard and had a heart attack and was just laying in the backyard and so the kids um, had come over to screw around and do whatever because her parents were gone and one of the kids was like hey man there's a there's a dude in your backyard and she's like no he's probably just sleeping and you know their attitudes were like whatever man and so she went over to kick him awake thinking that she was being funny because she's all punk and thinks she's a hard ass and he didn't move and he was dead and they ended up taking a ton of pictures around him like laying next to him and like putting their arms around him and like posing in all these pictures of this dead like painter that was in their backyard and so they were like laughing about it and the documentary you know the director was like did you feel bad about that and she's like no and the and darby crash who was the lead singer of the germs his quote was why he was just a wetback oh not my words okay, well that's yeah. racist so there was racism you know in it so it, it was just it just shows you you know why people were like you know that didn't like punk you know if you were an adult and kind of yeah whatever but they didn't care so that was one of the kind of the most disturbing things so i think that's you know it was just jarring you know attention getting kind of stuff whether they even realized that they were being a-holes about stuff or not I don't know because they were so young it just seemed crazy um so also in 1977 journalists Steve Samioff I think is how you pronounce that and Melanie Neeson founded a magazine called Slash Magazine and back then when you had these like little you know tiny magazines that were specifically about punk or something else they were called fanzines which is like a fan magazine basically um and they were featured featured interviews with bands like the Screamers, the Skulls, and, and Nervous Gender, which were some other LA punk bands at the time. 
And they often wrote these like vicious, kind of snarky, funny reviews about the bands because I'm sure some of the performances were ridiculous. And in the documentary, Melanie um, is editing a piece and she said that the articles were always a complete mess because obviously the, the reporters were always stoned, which I thought was kind of funny. So she must have had a hard job. <laughs> and so one of their star writers, who was also a lead singer of a band, his name was Claude Kickboy Face Bessie, who is from France. Kickboy Face. That's a weird nickname, isn't it? I didn't realize that when I wrote that down, that that was bizarre. Um, he was the lead singer of a punk band called Catholic Discipline, and he wrote in 1977... I'm going to try to pr- say French now. Sir de Coeur. <laughs> Sorry, France. C R I D E C O E U R. No idea. Yeah. Could be anything. Coeur de Coeur. So this is war, eh? I, I apologize. Cure. That was her. It was horrific. Um, which means in English, which I barely speak as well. Uh, so this is war, eh? Which is Canadian. <laughs> That's Canadian, Canadian for Sorry, whatever Canada. we just said in French. So his quote is, quote, enough is enough, partner. He must have thought that was very American. Um, About time we squeezed squeezed the pus out and sent the filthy rich old farts of rock and roll to retirement homes in Florida where they belong, end quote. Okay. So that's the the general feeling. He had another quote, which I thought was kind of indicative of what the attitude of punk rock is. And it was, quote, we're not all grooving on the same vibes anymore. Everyone's grooving on different vibes, ugly vibes, end quote. I thought that was appropriate because Instagram is full of good vibes only, only good vibes, which annoys me. Right. So there's also plenty of bad vibes start. if you search, and on Twitter. Oh, is there bad Twitter, vibes? Bad vibes. So I think you. I think you should start ugly vibes and see how that goes. All right, Actually, so now we have. Not a, do you want me to play term. a song, Catholic Discipline? Oh yes. Okay. okay now we're gonna play some Catholic Discipline. It's called Underground Babylon. This is a trendy one here. Well, okay. One thing I noticed immediately was his voice is terrible, and the tempo is all off too. They're not even like staying on time, trying, not, not even trying. It was super fast in the beginning, and then they slowed down, and then they sped up again. Well, you know, it is what it is. I couldn't even. I tried to some of the lyrics. I was going to try to write down some lyrics, and I was like, "Eh, whatever. You get it." Yeah. Well, go give that uh, YouTube video some views. It's only got seventeen thousand. I'm sure they would like some more. Yeah. Leave well, a comment. He is he has moved on. He died of AIDS, I think in like ninety one or something. Rest in peace. He was a very colorful character. They interview him a lot in that documentary. Um he ended up I think after the punk thing, he moved back to Europe at some point. Okay, so in this documentary I'm gonna talk about a couple of the bands that were in there. There was a few bands, but I wanted to kind of focus on a couple um that I found interesting and that kind of highlighted uh, females in punk as well instead of the dudes that were um, you know just broing out at punk and one of the big bands out of LA was called the Germs and they had a very colorful character which you mentioned before Darby Crash um, 
the original lineup for this band was uh, they all had uh, nicknames, by the way, or band names. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give you their real name and then call them for the rest of the thing by their uh, their band names. The singer was Jan Paul. I think his last name's Beam Bem B E A H M. How would you pronounce that? Beam? No idea. I don't know. No idea. Um, AKA Darby Crash, and he was. We're going to kind of go into him a little bit. He was fascinating. The guitarist was George uh, Ruthenberg, a.k.a. Pat Smear. You know who Pat Smear is, Aiden? Of course. Okay. Bassist, uh, Lorna Doom. And drummer, Becky Barton, uh, a.k.a. Donna Donna Rhea. And Lorna's name I wrote down because I talked about her before. Her her, uh, uh, last name is Ryan um, and I'm blanking on her first name, but I talk about her in a second. I kind of messed up the order here. Um, <clears throat> uh, the drummer, she played a few gigs uh, on with the band, and then she was on actually their first single. But she was eventually replaced by Jimmy Michael Gios- Giorsetti, G-I-O-R-S-E-T-T-I, a.k.a. Don Bowles. And he actually got his nickname Don Bowles from a journalist that was, I don't know, died in a car crash or something um, right before the band kind of got together. So Crash and Smear grew up together in L.A. Um, They were L.A. kids, and they decided to start a band after getting kicked out of high school for, quote, antisocial behavior, which is, I think, a popular thing that happened back then. They were apparently using mind control on fellow students which I would love to know the backstory of that. Yeah, that sounds a little fishy. <laughs> yeah. I kind of gathered from the stuff I was reading that they were so into drugs at that point, like especially LSD, that I think some of the kids, they were probably messing with some kids and were freaking people out. And so they called it mind control. Um, so then Darby and Smear, uh, Darby went to a, an IPS school. It's called Innovative Program School. Um, which he dubbed interplanetary school. (laughs) Ha ha ha. And they used some Scientology elements, which is of course very LA as well. Anybody knows about Scientology. We could do a whole thing on that. Um, And these kids in this program were encouraged to create their own classes, which I find hilarious, which also probably stems out of the hippy dippy movement. Um, And Darby and Pat decided to make up a class called the fruit eating class where they would take LSD, go to a market and eat fruit for an hour and then go back to school. That's the best class of all time. (laughs) I'm sure they aced it. Um, They eventually got kicked out of that school. Shocker. Uh, And uh, they went on to say, hey, let's just start a band. Now, Smear was basically the only one that could play an instrument. And uh, Darby was like, I'll just scream into the microphone. And he was very colorful. So I think he was going to be a good your front man and they decided to they met these you know two girls in one um account i read that they like put an ad out they wanted two girls in their band but they didn't want them to be able to play instruments they specifically said i don't want you to know how to play instruments because they wanted it to be bad but before anybody else could really apply to that they were at um they were at the Beverly Hills Hilton trying to meet Freddie Mercury and get his autograph. And they ran into Lorna Doom and then Belinda Carlisle, 
who she had a nickname in the band as well. She ended up, I'll talk about her later. She was in the band called the Go-Go's, very popular in the 80s, but she started out in punk. And they both, they were all four were there to try to get his autograph. And when they kind of ran into each other, they all, they were like, hey, we should start a band. And that, so that's kind of how they started the band. Now, Belinda Carlisle never played a gig, but she was kind of there at the beginning. And then they had the drummers um, kind of move around a little bit. And when they had their first gig, they were at the Orpheum Theater. And Smear said, uh, Darby stuck the mic in a jar of peanut butter. Laura wore her pants inside out. And Darby covered himself in red licorice. We made noise for five minutes, and then they threw us off, end quote. Cool. And I, I think that's kind of what they were going yeah. for. They squeeze a lot in in five they minutes. S- yep. They sent their first single called Forming off to a pressing plant, and when they got the track back, the staff from the plant had put a note on it saying, quote, warning, this record causes ear cancer. <laughs> <laughs> they were actually mad about that, which I think is funny because you think that they would be kind of proud yeah. of that because that's kind of seems like what they were going for they took a little offense to that it sounded like um they released an, one album it was called gi in 1979 which was produced actually by joan jett um and the album is considered one of the early hardcore punk albums um la weekly wrote quote this album leaves exit wounds mm. Quote. That's a pretty cool quote. The band broke up in April 1980 uh, when Crash and Bulls began irritating each other, which kind of became a theme with them. They re- reunited on December 3rd, 1980. Uh, Crash told the crowd uh, during that concert uh, that, quote, I lost my place. We did Sorry. the show so you, knew, so you knew people could see what it was like when we were around. You're not going to see it again. There you go. Crash had a, he had a five-year plan, which he took the five-year thing off of David Bowie's song, Five Years. So his goal was he was going to form a band with his friends, make it cultish or turn it into a cult, be totally outrageous, release one album, and then he was going to commit suicide. And literally that's what he did. So... Four days after that performance at the Starwood, uh, he committed suicide by intentional heroin overdose. Um, they know it was intentional because he had talked about it all the time with his friends, and they didn't really know when he was going to do it, but it, he always said, like, I'm just going to make enough money so I can get the heroin to use to OD, which is sad. He didn't have a very good um, childhood. He, his older, when he was 11, his older brother died of a heroin overdose and some people thought it was murder because he owed the drug dealer so much money that they think the drug dealer gave him um, bad heroin Mm. so he would die Um, and then he was raised by this man who he thought was his father but ended up being like somebody else and his father was actually this sailor that his mom had met and and then he ended up having a really good stepdad but then the stepdad died when he was young so he just had like kind of a chaotic kind of lifestyle or childhood um and he was this 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 the OD was also a suicide pact uh, that he did with one of his friends, um, and she ended up living, and so and he was twenty two at the time, which is kind of sad. But in a cruel twist of fate, because he wanted to be infamous, I believe um, the universe's karma kind of overshadowed him, and John Lennon died the next day. 
Uh. And that kind of took over and all his thunder was kind of taken away, I think, from the the uh, the suicide that he was hoping to have and being remembered. It kind of got overshadowed by, obviously, John Lennon. Um, so Crash was eventually recognized as being actually a great lyricist after the fact. And he kind of actually is. I mean, he's a mess on stage. He admittedly in this documentary is like, I get loaded as much as I can to perform, um, and I take as many drugs as I can, so when I throw myself in the audience or cut myself or do whatever like self-harming he was gonna do, he wouldn't feel it. And when you watch the documentary, it's almost like borderline disturbing to the point you can't watch, because it's like a total train wreck. Like he is just, I think I sent you a clip of yeah. he's just falling all over yeah. the place. And he was known to never sing into the mic, and people thought it was hilarious because they thought he was like an F you to the mic, like, oh, I'm not even going to sing in the mic, I'm so punk. But it's literally, he had no idea where the mic was. <laughs> he, it would like fall out of his Jesus. hand. And he, there was another clip of him not knowing the mic was, he thought the mic was not on because he literally had it down by his ankles because he was bending over and falling around so much. And he's like, this thing isn't on. And they're like, dude, it's on. You have to put it up to your mouth. <laughs> like he was just out of it. It's actually very sad to watch. Um, it was it's kind of heartbreaking. Um, and then Pat Smear went on to play with Nirvana and the Foo Fighters. He's awesome. We just saw him up in Santa Ana uh, playing with the Foo Fighters, which is cool. Um, Doom reunited with the me- the members that were left in the band in the 2000s. She's extremely private. I couldn't find anything about her besides that she went to high school with Belinda Carlisle, um, that she was in the Germs. And that was it. She uh, she passed away uh, in January of this year of cancer. And actually, very few people in her own circle knew she actually had cancer. She was so private. So unfortunately, I couldn't find any other information about what happened to her from, you know, in the 80s and 90s. But I'm sure she had a great life, hopefully. Um, Bulls played with other uh, punk bands. He was actually a DJ for a bit. And he wrote a book in 2002 called Lexicon Devil. Um Fast Times and Short Life of Darby Crash, if anyone's interested in that, because it seems like Darby kind of had an interesting short life, if not sad. Um, the Germs have a star at the Guitar Center, uh, Rock Walk, which is right out in front of the store there on, on Sunset. And they have a movie called What We Do is Secret that came out in 2007. So I'm going to play Lexicon Devil by the Germs from their only album, G.I. Oh, they only have one album? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yep. Lexicon Devil. Now that to me yeah. is punk. Like, like when you think of punk, that's it's punk. just more hardcore punk. <clears throat> yeah. So his lyrics, since he was such a good lyricist, is I'm a Lexicon Devil with a battered brain searching for a future. The world's my aim. And then he says, "Give me your hands. Give me the gimme a bunch of gimme gimmies. I want to- toy soldiers push and shove, gun boy rovers that'll wreck this club, build you up and level your heads, run it my way, cold men and politics dead. Oh wow. I mean, that's actually. Yeah. 
pretty good for someone who can barely get his words out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? So imagine if he had cleaned himself up and... Well, no, it wouldn't have been as artistic. That's The art comes no, with the drug addiction. Yeah, well, it's true. That's what punk is. If he if he yeah, wasn't okay. on drugs on stage, mm-hmm. I don't think it would be punk. I don't think he would embody the uh, what hardcore punk is and what oh. the music meant to everybody. Maybe. And the scene. So, <laughs> I don't agree. Whatever. So the next band we're going to talk about is X. Um, the members of this band is... Uh, Exine, Chervenka, who is the singer, uh, John Doe, he is the he was kind of her co-singer and bassist, Billy Zoom on guitar, and DJ Bonebreak on drums. DJ Bonebreak. Well, the funny thing is, everybody else's names are like yeah. made up, and DJ Bonebreak is actually his real name, oh. <laughs> which is the most punk really? name ever. How is that his actual yes. name? His actual name, I let's see, it's he was born. I, I wrote it down here. Donald J. Bonebreak. That's his name. So it's DJ. Oh. Everybody else changed their names to be more punk. That's weird. So they formed in 1977, which is obviously when every punk band formed that was punk. They released seven albums between 1980 and 1993. Um, they reunited in the early 2000s, and they're actually still touring today. But they had their way ups and downs, a lot of fighting, as you can imagine. Um, their first two studio albums uh, were called Los Angeles and Wild Gift, and they are actually in the top 500 greatest albums of all time, um, according to uh, Billboard. And Zoom and Doe met after seeing each other um, in ads in the Recycler, <clears throat> which was an LA kind of like rag mag that people would find bandmates and stuff. They were both looking for somebody to find a punk band. They decided to meet each other, and they both liked each other's style. Doe said that Billy looked like he was from outer space with bright blonde hair and a silver leather jacket. And Zoom liked Doe's brass-capped blue suede shoes, and he had good songs. So there you go. That's all it takes to make a band, man. Zoom had moved to L.A. in the 60s and had been a sideman for the Drifters. Um, And he was over the, quote, overproduced, super-processed, oversensitive... Uh, were so arty arena bands is what he which that sounds like a lot of people were they were all kind of LA transplants looking to reinvent themselves except for drummer Bonebreak who grew up in the valley Um, Doe met uh, Exine at a bookstore and told her about punk and she was immediately like hell yeah let's do this and they decided to start they started writing some songs together so she they were kind of co-writers and they each kind of wrote songs um and then one night, The Doors keyboardist, Ray Manarek, heard them playing at the Whiskey Go-Go with his wife, and they eventually decided to produce their uh, their debut album, Los Angeles, and they did that on the indie uh, label Slash. So out of that Slash magazine, one of the guys left and started Slash Records, which did a, uh, actually ended up uh, producing a lot of, um, of the punk bands at the time in L.A., Doe and Exine uh, got married in Mexico in 1980, and they divorced four years later. Doe said, despite them having both been hurt by the divorce, that, quote, she was a friend before she was my wife, and she was still a soulmate. When we sing, because uh, when we sing, we've sung for so long. Something like that it was kind of a ramble, whatever. But I thought that was kind of sweet. Like, they realized that keeping the music together was more important than maybe their divorce squabbles. 
Exine got in trouble at one point in the early days of, uh, not the early days, I guess, recently, if, kind of sadly. Uh, she was one of those that thinks that the school shootings are fake and they're filled with actors, specifically Newtown in Connecticut, which is horrific. She wrote a bunch of stuff online and then quickly deleted her stuff yeah. and kind of backtracked, which I think was smart. Um, and Doe went on to write a book called Under the Big Black Sun, A Personal History of L.A. Punk, which is actually really fascinating. So check that out. They actually play to this day. They have a website. They tour. So check them out. I'm pretty sure they're, they're one of the bands that are on like uh, T-shirts that um that like any random person will wear. Do you know what I mean? Like kind of how like, people wear yeah, like, like a like Rolling Stones t-shirt or whatever. Right. X the punk band. Totally. They're all, they've also done a lot of stuff, um, had a lot of songs in, in movies and, yeah. uh, you know, they've also done other things outside of that. So they, they actually ended up being pretty successful in their own right. And, and, and I mean successful, I don't mean in money wise, I mean as in like staying power and touring and kind of getting back yeah. together and, um, you know, so I'm going to play, uh, and obviously they had way more albums than most of the other, uh, other bands. I'm going to play Los Angeles for you from X. Is Los All Angeles. Right. Los Angeles, Los, that should be our theme song. Los Angeles theme song. So you can see their co-singers and yeah, pretty good. They actually had a song also that a cover of The Doors, which they put on their first CD. I don't think I have it here, but called Soul Kitchen, um, which if you listen to The Doors version and then the punk version, it's kind of funny. Um, so another act in this documentary are the bags um and alice bag still performs to this day she was she was born in east la her name alicia alicia armandarez armand armandarez i'm butchering that and i'm embarrassed um being in la awful her both her parents were from mexico and she is considered one of the first latina punk pioneers in america she grew up listening to her father's ranchera music and her sister's soul music. She was bullied in high school, elementary school, all through school, about her weight, her teeth, and not knowing English that well when she was little. Um, but despite all this, when she was about eight, she started recording theme songs for cartoons um, in English and in Spanish. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah, which is kind of cool, which is also very LA for a child to do. Um, she formed the bags with Patricia Morrison and they changed their names to Alice Bag and Pat Bag. And if you're wondering where the name came from, they used to perform with grocery bags on their heads. Um, hence the bags. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of trash bag, grocery bag theme outfits early on in punk, which I, you know, it's cheap, I guess. Um, 
somebody ended up ripping the bags off their head, you know, jumping on stage and pulling the bags off, which ruined the vibe. So they stopped doing that. But that's where the name came from. And they were around from, again, 1977 to 1981. The band broke up um, and Alice went on to uh, play with the the Alice Bag Band. She had to change the name because they were kind of arguing, um, unfortunately, about the use of the name, the bags. So, and then she also had a band um, in the 80s called uh, Cholita, which I think went back to her kind of Mexican roots. She actually said in an interview that I read that she, when you hear her music with the bags, there was a lot of her dad's like ranchera Mexican influence in her songs, but she actually wasn't even thinking that, you know, it wasn't on purpose because she was just so angry. She came from a very abusive, domestic abusive household. Um, which she actually wrote in a book um, that she wrote later on called Violence Girl. And she just said she was angry and punk spoke to her because they were accepting, of, you know, at the time she felt they early punk was accepting of everybody, whether you were gay, Darby Crash was gay of the germs, um, females, you know, most people had one or two girls in their in their band, if not all girls, there was like a couple all girl bands. Um, and just anybody that kind of felt freakish or different or whatever. So she felt early on, I think later on you got to hardcore punk. That kind of seems like, you know, when the races and the Nazi stuff and all that kind of crap took over, unfortunately, it didn't seem as inclusive, but she felt like it was. So it was her place to kind of be angry on stage. Um, and then later on in the eighties, she kind of realized she was bringing this like Mexican influence into her bands and she embraced that more. It, it sounds like, she ended up after her kind of punk phase, she still played, but she was an elementary school teacher for 20 years, which I think is very notable. Um, she's got kids. She wrote two books. She's a big activist in the LA area and in California, and she runs her website. So if anyone wants to go check out her website, it's alicebag.com, and she archives a bunch of interviews um, that she's done with other women that were in the LA punk scene at the time. Um, and she has some cool stuff on there, so go check that out. She put out two solo albums in the last couple of years, um, and again, I mentioned her book, Violence Girl, uh, and she, um, you know, she's pretty cool. So go check her out. She's still kind of out there being punk. And I'm going to play one of their songs called Survive. Okay. And we have we have two more after this, right? Uh, okay, yes, we're at, we're at 55 so. minutes, just so you know. Okay, we're almost done. I'll wrap it up. Let me find the bags here. This one is called, did I, did I do Survive on here? Hold on. Sorry, guys. Maybe I won't play Survive. Yeah, we can just go into the... Oh, yeah. Okay. Here's Survive. I got it. Sorry. I'm on YouTube because they didn't have it recorded on iTunes or anything. Yeah, different. Her, her sound's very different.
There you go. That's cool. That is different. Now, so far, who sounds like more of a put-together band? This one. Even though the vocals yeah. are still screamy. <laughs> yeah, but that's what it is. Okay, so I'm going to talk a band about a band that I, is near and dear to me from the 80s, but they started out in punk. That is not in the documentary. Called The Go-Go's. The Go-Go's. They went on to be very poppy, but they started in punk. And as I mentioned before, Teresa Ryan, that was her name. Lorna Dunes' real name is Teresa Ryan. So I apologize I didn't mention that earlier. Belinda Carlisle and her went to Newbury Park High School in Thousand Oaks. So they're Valley Girls. Um, they started a punk band in 1978, and they were briefly called the Misfits. Mm. Belinda, huh? Yeah. The Misfits? Already banned. I guess maybe not at the time. Are they? The Misfits, yeah. It's a huge punk band. Well, yeah, but that was after the fact. Right, they right, took right, it off right. the Go-Go's. Belinda Carlisle was born and raised in L.A., um, and I already told you the story about Freddie Mercury, which I thought was cool. They decided to form a band. She was actually supposed to be the drummer originally, which I mentioned, um, and she ended up what caused her from playing gigs with them is she got mono and she was out for a, a long time. And one of her friends actually took over as being the drummer and then it went to Bulls. Um, but she was actually kind of the gopher for the band, the germs at the beginning um, when she wasn't, you know, the drummer. She would give Darby like his peanut butter or glass to cut himself. So she was like handing him his props basically on stage. <laughs> peanut butter and glass. And then, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> She was actually more into uh, um, like acid and Darby was doing heroin and she was like, so she kind of stopped hanging out with the germs because she was like, I wasn't into this whole heroin scene. I was more into like acid and tripping out and all the psychedelics. So the Go-Go's, um, their lineup was uh, Belinda Carlisle, uh, Margot Oliveria, I think is her last name. Oliveria, Margot uh, Oliveria. I think Oliveria, she's on bass. Jane uh, Widely on guitar. Charlotte Gaffey on keyboards and guitar, and Al- Alicia Bello on drums. And they began writing songs that, um, you know, after kind of their punk phase going into the '80s, that were more pop, and they started getting recognized by record labels. I think Elektra is who they ended up signing with, um, and that's when Margot left the band, and she was replaced by. Uh, Kathy Valentine and then Gina Schlock was replaced by Alicia on the drums. So when they went more pop, two of the girls took off and they were replaced by two other girls. Um, and Mel- Belinda was singing, obviously. They started out the, at The Mask as well, and you can kind of look up some YouTube stuff on them. I'm going to play a song in a second. Um, and in, by 81, they were in a more pop direction, but they were very um, punk. They were all addicts tons of booze acid they trashed hotel rooms and their tour buses just like dude bands if you're wondering girls can trash shit too um and they were major fighting you know throughout uh, they kind of struggled to stay together and they had a big album their first uh, debut album was beauty and the beat which went platinum and they toured with like the police at one point all through europe and um and they broke up in 1985. Belinda Carlisle went on to have like a huge solo career. A lot of them got sober, had solo projects, and they got back together in the 90s off and on. Um, and to this day, they are still the only all-female band to write and perform their own songs that have hit the top Billboard charts. Oh, wow. To this day. That blows my mind. They have a Broadway musical called Head Over Heels, which features their music. And later this year, actually, I think it's going to be late November, December, is a documentary coming out about the Go-Go's that's going to be aired on Showtime. So check that out when Ooh. that comes out. I've got, okay. I've got, I'm going to play. Right here if you want me to play that. Okay. Well, I want to play Blade first. We got the beat 
I'm playing because it was their big the hit. whatever. But this is one of their this is one of their punk songs that obviously is on, only on YouTube. It's called Blade. So I want you to listen to how punk they were and then how poppy they got. Okay. So here's Blades by the Go-Go's. And this is from a rehearsal in 1980. Sounds like someone hawked a loogie into the microphone. That's Punk Go-Go's. Punk Go-Go's, and here's Pop Go-Go's. Here's Pop Go-Go's. brings back memories all right is there anything else today yeah let me wrap okay. up here i'll play this song quietly in the i know background. you want to i know you want to hear the go-go's yeah, all I'm gonna, afternoon i'm gonna play so the song quietly oh. in the background <laughs> okay so by the end of the 70s after a few years clubs began banning punk bands because of the violence or potential violence of the mosh pits and sometimes stabbings not always stabbings and the destruction of the clubs if you're ever wondering why some of the venues have disgusting toilets is because a lot of punk bands broke out toilets and would go to the bathroom on the floor um, and break stuff. So they're gross. So Darby Crash in the doc said, quote, back then, meaning like the past two years, it was good to have a reputation to get noticed, but not anymore because now we can't play anywhere. So punk had to basically clean itself up or go into obscurity. Some bands went more pop, as the Go-Go's obviously did, and some went way hardcore, but at that time it was kind of getting more acceptable um, and the clubs and venues knew what they were getting into so they were more accepting of it um, so pop ended up allowing some people to make some mo- some money you know and have a longer term career um, but now some would say that punk is pretty much mainstream as we like mentioned before Aiden said in the 90s there was kind of a punk revival and I think your roommate actually is very into Blink 182 punk, yeah. and what are some of the other pop punk bands? Do you uh, know? Good I Charlotte don't know pop. Uh, good Charlotte Blink One Eight Two. That's pretty much it. I don't really know a lot of them. Yeah. All right. So there we, there go. we go. That is the late seventies punk era of LA. We'll play the Go Go's to play us out. Play us out. Thanks Thank for, listening. for listening. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and I have a Facebook page that just came up. So like, subscribe, chat, hang out, and we'll see you guys have next week. Have a good week. one.